All right, if you've got a Bible near you, open it up to the book of Judges, chapter 3. We're in this journey through the Old Testament. We're actually taking a journey through the whole storyline of Scripture. Because if you want to know what Eagle Church is about, we're about teaching this God-breathed book. So if you want to know what we're going to talk about Sunday after Sunday, we're going to talk about this. And so we thought, let's start at the beginning, and let's get the story from the beginning, and we're reading through it together, we're teaching through it together, and we've come to this section in the book of, through Joshua and the Judges, here's what's surfaced over the last few weeks. God has been commissioning His people to wipe out several sections of other people who were previously occupying the land that He had determined was His people's land called the Promised Land, modern-day Israel. And so, I want to take a couple minutes at the beginning of the message and just address uh, an issue that I've really struggled with, and I suspect some of you have, and maybe currently are. And that's, what do we do with the narrative in this section of the Bible that seems to be filled with so much violence initiated by God, that He's giving a directive that appears to be on the surface like genocide or something like that? And so, how do we deal with that? And let me just say, as I step into this for a few minutes… This topic, I know, is a real stumbling block for some. We don't take it lightly. It certainly uh, deserves more than just a few minutes this morning on it, but I'm going to try to give you a small framework that's been helpful to me and then point you to a couple of resources to take a deeper dive on it, okay? So if you haven't pulled out your message notes, this would be a helpful Sunday to do that. Eaglechurch.com slash Sunday. You can pull up the electronic version of the message notes. You'll get a little bit of a summary of what I'm going to dive into here as we step into this section on Judges. So I'm going to give you three kind of three points of a framework that help me navigate what do I do with this section of the Old Testament. The first thing is, the larger storyline of Scripture reveals this, that God is merciful, gracious, and compassionate. Here's a passage that we read recently in Exodus, Exodus 34, 6, up here on the screen. The Lord, the Lord is compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Now, that passage right there is one of the most frequently repeated refrains all through the Old Testament storyline, that very verse. And so here's what we do in the midst of, I find it helpful to stay anchored to what God has made clear while I journey through what just is not very clear. So this section for me, I don't have all, I can't quite get a full framework, I can't quite get a full understanding of why God would direct fully this way, but here's what he's made clear. I take the larger picture of Scripture, and it's that God is gracious and compassionate and merciful as manifested in Jesus as we experience on this side of the cross. And I say, okay, what, what has God made clear about his character overall? And I set this section that seems to be a bit fuzzier in my mind and heart underneath that. That's one thing to hold on to. The second part is to make sure we get context for the spiritual climate that God is addressing when He says, I want you to take care of the Canaanites and Amorites and Midianites and Hittites and all these other ites. So the second kind of principle of the framework is the spiritual climate of the people who occupied the land. So a little bit of a deep dive. I promise we're going to come up for air in just a couple minutes. So hang with me. If you want to start counting lights, you can start counting lights in a minute, but I promise we're going to come up for air here. So here, the Canaanites... Is the main grouping of people. Their religious system was as dark and destructive as you could kind of frame in your head. You could think, what kind of a religious system could be created that is so dark and so… Canaanites would be at the top of the stack. Their creator God, here's a picture, it's called El, E-L, and El is the head of their pantheon. 
He was a bloody tyrant, as he referred to. He dethroned his own father, murdered his favorite son, decapitated his daughter. Makes you want to run to his temple sometime, right? Hey, let's go to hell's temple and worship. That's him. And Asherah was like a companion to El. She was like the goddess of fertility, was known as the mother of all gods in the Canaanite religion. So she and El are said to have conceived 70 other deities. Symbol is a wooden pole. That's what this picture is, known as like the tree of life. It represented her procreative power. So you've got El and Asherah, and then Molech is one of the key gods that the Canaanites worshiped. And you can see a picture here of the sacrifice and the system that was set up for Molech. So this is kind of a, the way his figurehead was and how they would create worship services around Molech. And he was the God who received child sacrifice. So in the system of the Canaanites, they believed to offer your firstborn child was the ultimate statement of sacrifice to your God or goddess, and specifically to Molech. And so I don't know if you see uh, there by the picture, but you can see that Molech's kind of got this posture of a hands out in front. Do you see that part of it? They say that they crafted that part of his hands to be solid metal, and they would build a fire. Do you see the fire underneath the image there? They'd build a fire underneath that part of his hands, and then they would take the firstborn child of various family units, and they would set the firstborn child in the flaming, hot, burning metal hands of Molech. And I don't know if you can see in the picture, there's flute players and drummers. Do you see the instrumentalists around? They said that the screams of the families, particularly the mothers, were so loud that they commissioned the, their, their own worship team. They commissioned their worship team to play the loudest songs they could play while they were taking the firstborn children and laying them in Molech's hands to sacrifice them. So happy Sunday. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Happy Sunday, everybody. But this is the system. Are you tracking with me? So when God says to Joshua and to the other leaders, you're entering into a land called the promised land, and you look at the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Midianites, their system of religion was embedded with such darkness and destruction that here's what's going on. God says there's got to be a cleansing before there's a dwelling. In other words, there can't be a co-mingling of Molech and Asherah and L with Yahweh. Because if there's a co-mingle, if he leaves a remnant of those groups of people behind for the Israelites to intermarry and begin to interrelate with, then what's going to happen is Yahweh's going to get added as one more God in the Canaanite pantheon. And God said, it can't be that way. I've got to completely remove the system that's there. I've got to cleanse what's there to create room and space for my presence to dwell with them. Are you tracking with me? So we've got this principle of what has God revealed holistically, like from Genesis to Revelation, He is a good, compassionate, gracious, loving, slow to anger God manifested in Jesus. And then secondly, think about the spiritual climate that God is addressing here when He's having to eradicate all these groupings of people and what they represent. And then the third element of the framework that's been helpful to me is that much of the violence commissioned by God was isolated to a specific time in specific circumstances. So I want you to follow this Tozer quote with me for a moment. I feel like Tozer summarized this well. It's kind of his way of saying the cleansing had to be very thorough from God's seat. Since God's first concern for His universe is its moral health, that is, its holiness, whatever is contrary to this is necessarily under His eternal displeasure. To preserve His creation, God must destroy whatever would destroy it. When he arises to put down iniquity and save the world from irreparable moral collapse, 
He is said to be angry. Every wrathful judgment in the history of the world has been a holy act of preservation. The whole, follow this. The holiness of God, the wrath of God, and the health of creation are inseparably united. God's wrath is His utter intolerance of whatever degrades and destroys. He hates iniquity as a mother hates the polio that takes the life of her child. That's a good grid, I think, to try to internalize this section that we have been reading through. So, much of the violence, not all of it, much of the violence in the Old Testament is isolated to this period of time with God and His people that He is commissioning His people to enter into the land that He promised them, and it had been previously inhabited for several hundred years by lots of other ites who've gotten very dark and destructive religious systems. So what's being communicated to us has happened in a pretty isolated and narrow window of time. That's one thing to keep in mind. And the second part is all the rest of the violence we read in here. For the most part, when you're reading a lot of the violent acts, it's kind of, the Bible records a historical narrative of what actually humans were doing to other humans during that time. And if you haven't noticed, we're pretty good at like destroying other people as humans. Like the human condition is you create these political kingdoms and then another political kingdom comes along and is going to take out the previous political kingdom. How does that usually happen? They don't just politely ask for that handover. They usually try to physically destroy them, bloodshed. So the Bible records lots of coming and going of human beings doing to human beings what human kingdoms do to other human kingdoms. And so the Bible's like not putting a sugarcoat on it. They're just like, that's why I love the Bible anyway. It's like this clearly has to be God-breathed book because if you were going to try to put a, a book together and try to propagate and, you know, for, forward your own personal religion, you would never record it this way. You would have edited this section out a long time ago. So there's got to be something here. And as you've heard me say many times around here through the years, that mystery isn't the absence of meaning, but the presence of more meaning than we can comprehend. So I would encourage you, church, to set the grand mystery of this part of the narrative underneath what God has made clear about His character, holding on to this reality of the spiritual framework, that, I mean, the, the spiritual climate that was there was very dark and destructive. He's got to cleanse so He can dwell. And remember, when you're reading through, we still got more sections to read through. Still more people are going to die in the weeks and months ahead. And when you're doing that, pay attention. It's mostly like human beings doing to human beings what the darkness of the human heart does when it's not restrained by His love and His grace. I hope that was helpful. If it was not helpful, I'm going to give you two resources that may be even more helpful. Dan Kimball's book, How Not to Read the Bible. Dan Kimball's book, it's in your notes, How Not to Read the Bible. Commend that to you greatly. And secondly, if this wasn't helpful at all, go see Julia Davis. She's got great answers to all your questions. She has a wonderful master's degree from Gordon-Conwell in Old Testament, and she's much sharper at all this than most of us will ever be. So there you go. All right. So what I want to do today is I want to kind of take this section now into Judges and set in a framework. I put a, a picture from a couple weeks ago. Here's the cycle of the book of Judges. I called it Spiritual Groundhog Day. Those of you here a couple weeks ago, you remember? So Spiritual Groundhog Day is this part of the, of the narrative that we're reading through that's basically human beings repeating the dysfunctions of yesterday today. Just imagine if we were to do that. Just imagine that maybe it wasn't just back for the book of Judges. Maybe we still struggle with Spiritual Groundhog Day. Here's what their Groundhog Day looked like. They decided that they were going to do what's right in their own eyes. We don't want to do it God's way. We want to do it our way. And then God says, okay, that's fine. I'll let you have the Midianites or the Hivites or the Amorites come in, and they oppress them. And the people go, oh, we don't like it when the Amorites are oppressing us. God, please come and help us. 
And God comes in and says, I'll give you a deliverer called the judge, the book of Judges. And we've so far, we've seen Othniel, which is Caleb's younger brothers, Othniel, and then Ehud. And then today we're going to get into some more of them. So God will raise up a judge. And then the judge will put the oppressor out, like push out the Amorites, push out the Midianites, push out the Hittites. And the people are like, yes, God, you are amazing. And they have rest and peace for a few years. And, and then they go to, we want to do what's right in our own eyes. We don't want to do it your way, God. And then another Amorite or Hittite or Par- comes in and starts oppressing them. Do you see? It's like lather, rinse, repeat. Lather, rinse, repeat, okay? So if you come in today and you feel like you're facing something in your life where you keep repeating the dysfunctions and the messes of yesterday, today, book of Judges, I commend to you. And today we're going to look at a couple of characters starting at the end of chapter 3. Here's the scene. It says, at the end of chapter 3, the land and the rest, the land had peace for 80 years. That was a great run. And then here's verse 31, the last verse of chapter 3. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down, catch this, 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. Now, Shamgar clearly did not have a physique like I have. I'm telling you that right now. Do you even know what an ox goad is? Here's a picture of an ox goad. It's like an eight-foot-long wooden pole that had a metal tip on it. It was basically a farmer's tool. That's how they kept their livestock kind of going the direction they wanted to go. They would goad them. They would poke them. They'd get them headed the direction they want to go. And Shamgar, this farmer, he's got an ox goad, and he's going to deal with 600 Philistines. Now, 600 in the Old Testament represents like a whole unit, like a whole platoon. It's not that he, they went and counted and say, hey, oh uh, yeah, 599, 600. Okay, we put that. In. No, it's representing like a lot of them and a lot of them represented by the number 600. So he's saying, I wiped out the whole platoon of the Philistines with my ox goad. And then next section, next verse. After Ehud dies, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. You're like, wait, you were just one verse later and you're deciding you're going to do what's right in your own eyes. And then there's oppression, and the cycle starts over, and they cry out to God, and God raises up now. Look at this next section, that God raises up a deliverer named Deborah. So the oppressor that comes in at this section of the story is the Canaanite leader named Sisera. Say Sisera. Sisera is leading a large Canaanite army. He said he had 900 chariots, super intimidating character. So Deborah steps in as God's deliverer, God's judge, to put down the rebellion and the uprising, the oppression of the Canaanites through Sisera. So verse 4 of chapter 4, Deborah, a prophetess. So Deborah's got prophetess title and now judge of Israel title. She's top shelf here. Deborah, wife of Lipideth, was leading Israel at that time. So a little parenthesis here, lest we're struggling with the empowerment of women in God's church and kingdom. It seems as if all the way back in Judges, he did not have a problem having women in positions of leadership and influence and guiding and leading. So let's remember that as we want to continue to raise up and release our women to God's call on their life and see them deployed to fulfill His purposes. I have a feeling we've got some Deborahs in our own congregation here. And for you young ladies to see, hey, God can use you. Just be, continue to keep your heart and your hands open. He might put you in a Deborah-type role. Male-dominated society, she's a prophetess and now a judge, the key leader in Israel to bring victory 
and deliverance for this whole group. Look at verse 15. So she puts a plan together, gets the Israelites rallied to carry out the plan to get them out from Canaanite captivity. Verse 15, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. So Deborah's plan was so effective, he's got, she's got one of the most powerful military leaders running for his life. And so he's running, and he gets to a place where he, he finds a tent, which he thinks is a safe haven of a, a woman, a wife, a, a wife of a Heber the Canaanite named Jael. Verse 17, Sisera, however, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Canaanite. So he thinks he's going to get a little rest here. He needs to take a breath. He needs to get a plan together. He's running for his life. So he finds what he thinks is a safe place to go. Jael welcomes him in, gives him a little drink, gives him a place where he can rest, lay down. He takes a bit of a nap during his nap. So she's offering hospitality, and here's what happens during this. Verse 20, he says to her, stand in the doorway of the tent. This is Sisera saying to Jael, if someone comes by and asks you, is anyone here? Say, no. I bet so. But Jael, Hebrew's wife, check this out, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Different kind of hospitality. Some of you are like, I had no idea that was in the Bible. You ought to read this crazy book, huh? She drove a tent peg through this guy's temple, the biggest powerful military leader in the land. She had this plan in mind the whole time. I think Jael's a hero. I mean, you got Deborah, you got Jael. How about these female, these women leaders? They're like, hey, these guys don't know what to do. We'll step forward. We know what to do. Give me my tent, tent peg. I know how to take care of this situation. My goodness. And then look, verse 23. On that day, God subdued Jabin, the Canaanite king. That's who Sisera reported to before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger. So here you see the cycle? So you've got with Shamgar with his ox goad, which by the way kind of foreshadowed another guy that we know about, we're going to read in a few months, David, a family runt who's got just a sling and a few stones in his pouch, runs into a battle with a nine-foot Philistine giant named Goliath. So you've got Shamgar, a farmer with an ox goad. You've got a guy like David with just a few stones and his sling taking down a Philistine. You've got Deborah in a male-dominated society taking leadership. You've got Jael taking a tent peg to someone's temple. You've got, okay, whether all, here's the principle of all this. Hey, what are we supposed to glean out of all this? I think this is the principle, that God loves impossible odds, and He uses the ordinary to deal with the impossible. These are very ordinary people. There's nothing exceptional about their, you know, you got, you got farmer, you got family run, you've got just a, 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 home, a homemaker with a tent, and she's got, well, I got a tent peg and a hammer, I can deal with this. She just takes what she has where she's got. So the opportunities that they're thrust into, they usually come disguised as impossible problems. Have you noticed this with God? Like some of you are walking with God and you're just thrust into one impossible circumstance after another. And welcome to Shamgar's life. Welcome to Deborah's life. Welcome to Jael's life. You keep walking with God, you're going to be thrust into, you're going to be staring at a Philistine army. You're going to stare at a nine-foot Goliath. You're going to stare at a, a Canaanite madman with 900 iron chariots at his disposal. It's going to look like impossible problems. And then God typically takes very ordinary people and deploys them to address the impossible. And you say, well, why would He do it that way? Well, when the impossible turns to possible, and the ordinary are at the front of that, 
guess where the glory could only go? You're only going to point one way once you recognize how ordinary you are and how impossible the circumstances you're staring at are. And when you see the impossible turn to possible, it had to only be God. And I think that's the point of the narrative of this section, that I think Deborah and Jael and Shamgar, they all get together and they're having a worship service and all that. I don't think it's like, you know, people like pinning ribbons and bows on their lapels. I think they're like, if the Lord didn't come through, we'd be toast. And I think about that, you know, as I reflected on this past week, I was thinking about last Sunday, we had our Mission Sunday here, which team did a great job leading through that. And I thought about Tom and Wendy Langebartles, you know, just ordinary people who were, you know, standing up, stepping forward and saying, they heard about a Syrian refugee family who needed to learn English four years ago. They're just ordinary people. It appeared to be impossible to try to help this family begin to navigate all the stuff they're navigating. And now it's getting linked up with several of you helped show up and build a habitat for humanity, got the walls going this week and just now this Syrian family is going to end up having a home. And, and then Jan Woodall talks about how she got linked up with Joel Vestal and this Migros Aid Ministry. It's just ordinary people helping out. What we didn't realize was how maybe Indianapolis has become a hub for refugee ministry in a way that we never could have imagined. And he's just deploying like ordinary people into those spaces. And the circumstances look overwhelming and they, they look quite Im- impossible. Or several families here who sign up to do things like safe families. I heard about David and Nikki Swinney's part of their week this week. If, if you know the Swinney's, ask them how, how challenging maybe their week was with the safe families journey this week. But they just opened up their lives and their homes to help kids that are in crisis, whose parents are in really tough situations. They're saying, we'll help ordinary people looking at impossible circumstances. I ran into Jessica Swathwood this week, and Jessica was telling me how excited she was to get her own apartment and her own place uh, for the first time. And, and she said, you know, I'm, I'm really excited about having my own place because I'm, I'm going through foster care training because I want to open up my own place to just start caring for kids in need. Just ordinary, ordinary people doing these extraordinary things all around the places. I, I, one of our own elders this week is in Bolivia, Dave Weir, and many of you have been praying for Dave. He's been posting his updates. He got stuck in Panama. He was on his way to Bolivia and got stuck in Panama. He's got quite a story to tell, I think, by the time he gets home, but he made it to Bolivia. He's there trying to help turn around to, to see an end to child trafficking in the world and and so he's there pouring his life out, moving God's purposes forward. He's a financial planner, you know, in north side of Indianapolis by day, and he's doing this. I mean, that's ordinary people looking at impossible circumstances. Or I think about what Sarah Ford does with Remember New, and she's just like trying to band everybody together to say, hey, can we just like, let's put a tent peg in the temple of child trafficking in this world. Can we do that? I think we can. We've got people like Sarah Ford just saying, here, I'm, I'm here to help. And on and on it goes through our missions team efforts. And the cool thing over the last few months, we've had a bunch of guys come together. We've had like Chris Rent and Chris Morris and, and Jay Kellogg and Ethan Erstein and Austin Sterling. We're all getting together and we're talking about, let's do something about male isolation. It seems to me we've got a pattern of men in isolation. Typically, the end point isn't a very good place. It typically is spiritual Groundhog Day stuff. It's like, how are we going to address this? Well, we're going to try to create some environments where men can connect with each other. It's like ordinary guys. We're looking at the impossible would be, well, try to help pull men out of ice. That seems kind of overwhelming and, and the circumstance, but we're just going to do what we can with what we have. Just ordinary people. This is how this works in the kingdom of God. That God loves to set us in circumstances that look seemingly overwhelming, seemingly impossible, seemingly insurmountable. And He says, what do you have in your hand? 
You got an ox code? Got a tet peg? You got a sling? What do you got in your hand? God will just use whatever you, it seems to be really ordinary what you have in your hand. God says, well, just trust me. Take what you have in your hand and move forward in obedience to me and watch what I do. So when he takes the impossible and turns it to possible, the narrative for all of us is going to be, well, that had to be God. I think that might be the point, right? Because clearly in this section of the Old Testament, they eventually do break out of these cycle after cycle after cycle, and the only explanation is the Lord that way. And we could keep going on and on. I thought about, you know, in a few months we're going to hear from Danny Marquez and Youth for Christ and Rex and Amy Miller helping move forward to ministry on the West Side Youth. Ordinary people just moving things forward, one after the other after the other. So as I wrap it up this morning, I want to ask you, what is it you're staring at this morning that you look at and go, it looks overwhelming and borderline impossible? Where are you staring at? Personal circumstances? Could be marriage and family stuff, could be health stuff, financial stuff, could be ministry stuff, could be interpersonal relational stuff in here. What are you looking at and you're staring at and you go, overwhelming and impossible? And then from there, say, what do you have in your hand? Say, well, I'm really ordinary. Great start. If you start with ordinary, I'd say your first round draft pick on God's board right there, super ordinary. So, what do you have in your hand? You take your ox code, take your tent peg. Take your sling, as ordinary as it is, and offer it up to the Lord. And then just say, God, here I am. Use me. I'll step forward and I'll make myself available. I'll trust you to deal with what seems to be impossible. And when you flip the script from impossible to possible, I'll make sure you get all the glory in it. And I think that's the point in the story. So worship team, why don't you come on back up? We're going to wrap up with a, a song here. And then we're going to commission Petula, our missionary to Bosnia, and just think about if you haven't spent much time with Petula, she would just make sure you'd know she's a very ordinary person, but doing extraordinary things for the kingdom of God. She's just offering her own ox goad and tent peg. You know, she's trying to drive a, a spike into some really difficult things in another part of the world. And we're going to commission her and send her back to kind of her home away from home. This is how that works. This is the church of Jesus. And if you're frustrated at a spiritual groundhog day you're staring out in your life, um, perhaps maybe look around, and I'm guessing God might have inserted some people around you um, to help break in and to say, hey, the things that happened yesterday, they don't have to keep happening today or tomorrow, but it's going to have to require some change. Maybe he's sending a jail into your life. I, have, I, have, I happen to believe that. Here's a good commentary on the local church today. I think we're the Shamgars and Deborahs and jails of today to deal with the impossible and overwhelming circumstances of our world, that this is us. And we just bring what we have, our ordinary selves, whatever we have in our hands, and we say, God, would you take the impossible and turn it to possible? And we'll give you the glory to do it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for these stories. Thank you for preserving uh, commentary that's so applicable to our everyday lives here in 2021. I pray for those who find themselves staring at overwhelming and insurmountable. I pray that you'd breathe hope and strength and perspective. And uh, I pray that you would give us the courage to step forward and say, I'm this ordinary, but I'm offering what I've got to you. I pray for a breakthrough, I pray for change, I pray for turning points. 
I pray that you would deploy us as the Shamgars and the Debras and the jails of today to deal with the brokenness of our world. Help us to be faithful, to steward our ordinary lives for your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.